I'm Jeremy, and along with my wife, Julie, we uh, head up pastoral care here at Grace Church. Um, right, yeah, we are continuing our series, uh, Being with Jesus, which is a study through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is really important in my own spiritual journey. Yeah, I, I wasn't brought up in a Christian family, uh, but uh, I had a basic knowledge of Christianity from RE at school, and just because I'm of the age where uh, it was compulsory for schools to do a basically Christian act of worship each day. Well, anyway, I ended up falling in love with and marrying a Christian woman whose dad just happened to be a vicar. Um, and I had some good friends at university who were Christians, but I basically thought, it's not really relevant to my life. Well, when our kids were small, Julie ended up taking them along to a mums and tots group at the local Baptist church, and then we ended up going there. Um, then there was one evening, Julie had gone out to a choir practice, the kids were settled in bed, and I picked up her Bible and I thought, actually, maybe I should just check out a bit about this as I'm going to church. And I knew that the New Testament bit was a bit about Jesus. So I turned to the beginning of the New Testament, first book in the New Testament, Matthew. So I started reading. Two things I noticed. First of all, it was incredibly easy to read, which was a huge surprise. And then, but the most important thing I noticed was the character of this man, Jesus. He seemed to step out of the pages. The, the profoundness of his teaching, the, the way he, he went to the outcast and marginalized in society to tell them about God's love for them, the way he taught his followers to love and forgive, I, it actually brought me to tears. And although I knew the story of the cross and the resurrection, it suddenly seemed to become real. Now, I don't know whether I became a Christian that evening, but something shifted in me. Some questions started to become really real. Was this Jesus really who he said he was? Could this really be relevant to my life? Is there really hope for a life after death? Well, today we're looking at the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, and I believe what we learn can help with those questions that first grew in me. But first, I want to give a brief overview of the events leading up to our reading today. So Jesus has been betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of his closest followers, and at his arrest, the rest of his followers have abandoned him. He was uh, taken and he's had an illegal trial on trumped-up charges and been condemned to death and handed over to the Roman authorities where he's been flogged. Then he's been mocked with a crown of thorns put on his head. Then he's been led out of the city and nails driven into his hands and his feet. And now we come to our reading for today, which is Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. If you haven't got a Bible, the words should come up on the screen. So that's Matthew 27, 45 to 54. 
Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church that he decided to know nothing amongst them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So clearly Paul thinks the crucifixion is the center of Christianity. And um, we believe that the cross has done so much for us. I, I couldn't possibly do it justice in my sermon today, and I won't have time to cover every point in that, uh, in that reading. But I will concentrate on three main points. The wrath of God, the death of Jesus, and the curtain. Imagine you are a good Jewish student at Jerusalem Comp, Class of 33 AD. I know it doesn't work, but go with me on this. Um, you're sitting your GCSE in Torah studies. Question one, explain the wrath of God. You pick up your pen on your, and write on your papyrus all about how God gave his holy law, uh, essentially the, the Ten Commandments, inscribed on two stone tablets through the prophet Moses. This was all part of God's agreement or covenant with his people that there would be righteousness and blessing for those who kept his laws and kept the covenant. And there would be judgment and cursing on those who broke his laws. So in summary, you say the wrath of God is his just punishment on those who break his holy laws and on those nations who attack his holy people. Textbook answer, back of the net. <laughs> so where do we see the wrath of God in today's reading? Well, we read in verse 45 that darkness covered the land from the sixth hour, that's 12 noon, until the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, straight off the bat, I want to say this was not a solar eclipse. Jesus was crucified at Passover, and at Passover there's a full moon, and you can't have a solar eclipse when there's a full moon. The moon's in the wrong place, and they don't last for three hours. Other explanations like storm clouds or dust clouds don't fit. This was supernatural darkness. Now, again, as our good Jewish student, you would remember instantly that God sent out darkness over the land of Egypt 
as one of the plagues, as judgment on the Egyptians. And then in the book of Amos, God would send out darkness over the land of Israel as part of his judgment on those who were abusing and exploiting the poor and vulnerable. So yes, this was God's judgment, his wrath. But who or what was God's wrath directed at here? The answer is all the sin and evil in the world. Jesus knew that the only way he could deal with all our sin and mess was to take it onto himself. Now, we all, we all agree in justice in theory. We think it's, it's quite right that those who commit serious crimes should face judgment. People also, when you get chatting to them, a lot of people, and I certainly used to think that, seem to think that I'm basically a good person. So is it easy, and, and how can we split the good people from the bad people, and where do you draw the line? Uh, at, at thieves? Yeah, I know I nicked stuff when I was a kid. I nicked some sweets from a shop. Uh, and, and isn't taking home some paper and pens and paper clips from work theft? And what about if we cheat our employers by not working full time, and, and if we throw a sickie? Is that theft? Hmm. What about murder? Yeah, that, we're on safe ground there, aren't we? And yet Jesus said that if you're angry at someone, that's the same sin as murder. Oh. The trouble is, of course, you see, God is perfect. And as he's perfectly just, he should condemn uh, wrongdoing wherever he sees it. So he should condemn us when we're selfish or mean-spirited or, or envious of what other people have got. There's uh, a story that uh, the Times newspaper once sent out an inquiry to famous authors saying, what is wrong with the world today? The British philosopher G.K. Chesterton wrote, pack, wrote back and said, dear sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. He knew the truth of the Bible's verdict on us, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, there's a story from the Gospel of John where people brought a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, demanding that she be stoned to death, which was the legal penalty at the time. And Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And all her accusers melted away. And then Jesus said to her, I don't condemn you. Go in peace and don't sin again. You see, what we want for other people is justice, but what we want for ourselves is mercy. But justice demands wrong's been done, someone must pay. Someone's got to pay. Who is going to pay? Well, the book of Isaiah, written at least 600 years before Jesus went to the cross, tells us. In Isaiah chapter 53, we learn about a character called the suffering servant, who would take the punishment on behalf of God's people. Isaiah 53 tells us that the righteous suffering servant would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Yet it was the will of God to crush him in order to make an offering for guilt and that out of the anguish of his soul, he would carry the iniquity of many and make many to be counted righteous. 
Jesus understood himself to be the suffering servant. All the sin, all the evil in the world would be placed on Jesus. And now we come to verse 46, one of the strangest in scriptures where Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, as our good Jewish student, you would instantly recognize this as the first line of Psalm 22, which was written by King David of David and Goliath fame a thousand years before. The psalm starts with this cry of despair and then goes on to describe what essentially an execution it would seem by crucifixion. Now, that didn't happen in the life of David. Just read it. You'll be shocked at how closely it parallels the crucifixion. The psalm ends with a cry of praise. And some think that Jesus was strengthening himself by quoting scripture. But it seems to me Jesus really is in despair. This sounds suspiciously like the anguish of his soul described by Isaiah. And in actual fact, some translators say that um, cried out in a loud voice should better be translated as screamed. Jesus didn't scream when they flogged him or they put a crown of thorns on his head or they drove those nails into his hands and feet. Yet he screamed at being forsaken by God. That is because the greatest pain we can feel is separation from the source of all love and life. You see, although Jesus was fully man, he was also fully God. He, the Bible teaches that he, he was the eternal God, the Son, who throughout eternity had never known anything than complete love and intimacy with God the Father. Even when he took on flesh and came to earth, he'd always known the, uh, the intimacy and communion with his heavenly Father. But on the cross, he bore our sin and shame. Now, the punishment for sin is eternal separation from God. That is what hell is. So on the cross, Jesus took our punishment. He took the hell that we deserve. Literally, Jesus was literally experiencing hell for our sakes, that separation, eternal separation, compressed. No wonder he screamed, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So how bad must our sin be if it requires the abandonment and death of God? And how great must his love for you be that he would do that for you? for me. There are some people that Julie and I see who feel worthless, useless, feel like they're damaged goods and feel that no one could love them. I've seen other people who are going through tough times and when they pray, God doesn't seem to answer. They feel abandoned. If those kind of feelings resonate with you, then look to the cross where you will see God abandoned, naked, broken, 
blood-stained, dying in your place. That's how much you are worth. That's how much you are loved. Jesus was forsaken in order that we might be accepted by our Heavenly Father. Let that sink into your heart. So Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf, and that led to my second point, the death of Jesus. In verse 50, we hear that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what he cried out, uh, but the loudness together with the yielding emphasizes that this was an act of Jesus' will. Uh, in John 10, Jesus said that he had authority to lay down his life and, uh, and to take it up again. In other words, Jesus is in charge. He's not just a passive victim taking punishment for the world's sin. He is our righteous king and our champion winning the victory for us. Go back to our good Jewish student who knows full well the story of Samson and Delilah. Samson was one of the great heroes of Israel's past from the judges' period. God had given him incredible strength. He fought the Philistines and killed thousands of them. He was tricked by Delilah into revealing the, the source of his strength and that if his hair was cut, then he would lose his incredible strength. And whilst he was asleep, that happened, and he was captured by the Philistines and blinded. And to celebrate, the Philistines held a massive party in, uh, in the temple of their god, Dagon. All the rulers and those in authority in the Philistine uh, kingdom were there, uh, thousands there, and they decided that they would bring out Samson to mock him and humiliate him for a bit of sport. So Samson stood there and God gave him back his strength one last time. And Samson pushed the supporting pillars of the temple, causing the temple to collapse, killing thousands of the Philistines, de destroying the rulers and authorities of the, the Philistines. And it was said that in his death, Samson killed more Philistines than he had in his life. Now, this is a great picture for us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Colossians 2.15 tells us he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And what rulers and authorities means here is the spiritual forces of evil in the world. So as Jesus was on the cross, as all the evil in the world was focused on him, in his death, he won a massive victory over them. Jesus defeated Satan. He defeated the demonic powers in the universe and won us freedom from our slavery to sin. Yeah, amen. The enemy now has no power over us so we can be free from fear. What's more, 2 Corinthians 2, 5.21 tells us, for our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What this is saying is that on the cross, as Jesus took our sin and shame, in return, he gave us his very own righteousness. So now when Satan accuses us of sin, he has no power 
because the verdict over our lives is not even just not guilty. The verdict over our lives is righteous. What is more, our victorious king defeated death when he rose again on that first Easter morning. And we, he has taken us with him. Now we really can have hope for a life after this one. And that's not just wishful thinking. It is built on the solid foundation of the word of God. So the one who spoke light into darkness, the one who was the very light of the world, after experiencing the darkness and forsakenness of the world's sin, died. And at his death, creation itself was shaken. As we read in verse 51, the earth shook, the rocks were split, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the start of the end of the old creation and the beginning of a new creation, a new start in the way that man related to God. And the sign that this was happening was the tearing of the curtain of the temple, which brings me to my third point. To understand the significance of the temple curtain being torn, I need to explain a bit about the temple. Temples are places where people go to encounter God. The, um, the temple in Jerusalem was um, organized that people were restricted to various areas depending on, how, uh, on their status and how close they could get to God. If we imagine the ministry as the uh, temple in Jerusalem, not too dissimilar in size. So if you were not ethnically Jewish or a Gentile, which I'm guessing is most of us, we would be restricted to the court of the Gentiles. So essentially, most of us are outside on the street or in the car park. If you were a, a Jewish woman, you'd be allowed into the coffee bar area. A Jewish man, maybe up to about here. Um, this area we'll call the holy place, and uh, you can all be priests here, actually. Um, yeah, the pr only priests were allowed in the holy place. At the end of the room, where the uh, chairs are stacked, there'd be the massive curtain, about 60 feet high, about 30 feet wide, and about a hand's breadth thick. And that curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place represented the dwelling place of God on earth. And behind that wouldn't be a load of chairs, would be the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the stone tablets um, uh, in, on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed, along with some manna and Aaron's staff. Now, there was no access to the presence of God in the most holy place except for the high priest and only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And the only way he could enter that is after a blood sacrifice to atone for his own sins and the sins of the people. The main thing you need to remember is that for most of us, uh, we're outside looking in. We're aliens and strangers from God. We're separated from God with no hope. However, Verse 51 tells us that at Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The fact that it was from top to bottom means it was God did it. God ripped open that curtain 
God ripped it open to say, now enter in all those, all the outsiders. Now the way to God is open to all. It was a declaration that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It signified the end of the ceremonial law with its requirements and its sacrifices. The book of Hebrews tells us that these were only figures and shadows pointing to an ultimate reality anyway. And that is now there's no longer any need for an earthly high priest and a day of atonement because Jesus, the true Lamb of God, has been slain to take away our sin. And Jesus Christ, our true high priest, has appeared to bring us into the presence of God and to plead our cause before God the Father. The cross has made a way for those who were far away to be brought into the presence of God and to be adopted as children of God, to be part of that new creation, the kingdom of God, to be crowned with honor as sons and daughters of the king. Grace Church, you are holy, you are chosen, you are beloved. As I was praying about this message, I felt strongly that God wanted to speak to those who were struggling with sin and shame and feel that they don't deserve God's love. I know when I've fallen into sin, uh, that shame has affected me and I've found it really hard to come back to God. Uh, I find it hard to come back and pray because I feel so ashamed. Um, And then you try and do the good work, saying, oh, I'll do a bit of extra Bible reading, as if that makes any difference. If, If that resonates with you, then listen to me from Colossians 1 that tells us that the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Did you hear that? The Father has qualified you. Doesn't depend on you. Doesn't depend on how you feel. And if you are carrying sin and it's weighing on you, then listen with me to 1 John verse 9, which tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe the truth. Find a mature Christian to speak to and pray with and be free from this burden you're carrying. Sometimes shame is not just due to things that we've done ourselves. It's due to things done to us by other people. What I know from in my own life and in those that I see uh, in for pastoral care, is that often shame comes from wounds done to us by other people, often people that we care about or who we think should love us. Wounds of neglect, wounds of, of lack of love and appreciation, wounds of rejection and wounds of abuse. So many of us know that feeling that there's, as if there's something not right with us, that we're, we're unacceptable. And what would people think if they actually knew 
and what will people say about us. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, uh, tried to cover their nakedness and shame with fig leaves and to hide from God. And now when we sin or feel full of shame, we, we hide ourselves from each other, pretend everything's okay and hide ourselves from God. And we often use different fig leaves. What fig leaves do you use? I know I, in the past I've used overworking, I've used alcohol, and I've used numbing myself with mindless television. What about you? Some people uh, comfort eat. Some people excessively control their weight. Some people use addictive substances or, or, or addictive behaviors like pornography. Yet yeah, some of these are sinful, but the roots are in shame and in wounds done to you. And I, I feel that there's some people need those wounds healing. To those who bear emotional wounds and full of shame, come to Jesus, the one who came to bind up the brokenhearted. Receive healing for those wounds you're carrying. That tearing of the curtain reveals that now all are invited to draw near to God with boldness and approach him with confidence by faith in Jesus. The Lord is saying to those today who are struggling with shame, your sin is dealt with. Your shame is covered. You are wearing the robes of righteousness that Jesus wore. You are enough. You are beloved. You are welcome, my son. You are welcome, my daughter. Come and be with me and you'll find rest for your soul. Grab the band up. And finally, we come to verse 54 of our reading. When the centurion, who had seen everything taking place, proclaimed, truly this was the Son of God. That was the start of my hope when I first read the Gospel of Matthew. I later came to throw myself fully on God's mercy and have come to answer those questions that I first had. Jesus really was God coming into this world to save us. He really was who he said he was. And his love changes everything. And because he has defeated sin and because he's defeated death, we can have a living hope of a life after death with him.